Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. That technique has worked perfectly fine for me, but the reality is even with the MPA, if you get down there, you can kind of angle into the origin of each and you'll see whether there's rapid anti-grade flow or if there's no retrograde flow in pooling, they usually don't have the disease. And I don't always do a balloon occlusion. If they've been stented and they've had their gonadal veins treated and they're still symptomatic, they're getting a balloon occlusion venogram because that is the definitive way to rule it in or out, treat it and be done with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Together, we can save more limbs and help more people walk without pain. Boston Scientific is committed to advancing science in the fight against PAD by boldly innovating with next-generation drug-eluting technology. Backed by level one randomized control trials, our proven technology delivers exceptional results no matter the patient, no matter the lesion. Choose Boston Scientific, Drug Illusion, and take the fight to PAD. Visit bostonscientific.com or see the show notes to learn more. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Vahedi, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is Dr. Brooke Spencer, interventional radiologist in Denver and CEO and medical director of Minimally Invasive Procedure Specialists. Brooke, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Allie. Before we start, could you tell me and the audience a little bit about your practice today? Yeah, so I started out in interventional radiology 23 years ago, believe it or not. It's evolved quite a bit. It started out with complex venous reconstructions for IVC and iliac veins, which I continue to do. But over the last five years, it's really morphed into a female pelvic pain practice where at least 50% of my patients are coming from all over the country and out of the country to be treated for complex pelvic pain. Wow, that is quite amazing. And I got to ask you, when you first started as an interventional radiologist, did you ever think you'd be kind of like a, a pelvic pain specialist? 
No, not at all. I would say that what I do on a daily basis now, even five years ago in my own practice in life is very different. And I did very little or almost none of it in training. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that's just one of the great things about our specialty is like you don't know what your what your job's going to be like five years from now. <laughs> our topic for the show, um, you've spoken before on the show about pelvic venous disease. I want to delve a little bit more into pelvic venous disease and specifically the management of vulvar varices. How common is this problem? First of all, I think that in general, the female pelvic pain problem is extremely common. About a third of women see OBGYNs for pelvic pain. And given that 50% of laparoscopic surgeries are negative for the cause of that pain or endometriosis, I think there's a very large number of women out there being undiagnosed or misdiagnosed who have pelvic venous disease as the cause of their pain. In terms of labial and vulvar varices, we're going to publish a lot of data in the next three to five years because we're seeing hundreds of patients a year now for this. But I would say in my estimation, it's probably about 10 to 15% of the women that I treat with pelvic pain because I have a very young population who also have labial varices. Okay, so concurrent disease. And then how do they usually present to you? Are they self-referred? Are they referred from providers? How do they find you? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate to have um, an incredibly open-minded OBGYN community here who, you know, these patients are very frustrating for the OBGYN. So unlike fibroids, where there's been some competition or difficulty kind of getting that collaboration going, this is an area that's very easy to collaborate with uh, GYNs and pelvic pain specialists for us, which is fantastic, right? Always good to have other doctors involved. This is a patient population that's frustrating for them and they have a hard time treating. So when we've done some education, and I think a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So if you have a patient with horrible bladder symptoms and urogynecology and pelvic floor can't figure it out and you show them a venogram with varices completely outlining the entire bladder, all of a sudden a light bulb goes off in their head and they start to believe it. When you take a, a patient, for example, that I had in her 60s, massive doses of prednisone, for a year and a half, unrelenting, nine out of 10, pain in the labia, constantly and continuously on one side, and somehow it gotten diagnosed with max cell activation of the labia, which mast cell activation syndrome is a systemic problem. And when we treated her labial varices, it did take about a year to get her pain to calm down and go away. We had to treat the buttock varices and the labial varices, but we were able to resolve her pain and get her off her steroids. That's really amazing. Yeah, I bet I bet that patient is very thankful she found you. So your question originally was, how did I find them? And I would say that we have amazing collaboration with the GYNs through local education. Also, Pelvic Guru, which is another organization aimed at pelvic pain, had me on Facebook. And so I got to a lot of pelvic floor physical therapists across the country that way. And then also it's social media that I'm not actively involved in. But Facebook groups of people frustrated with this problem not being addressed or taken seriously, and then just word of mouth. That's really interesting. This is a side note and only tangentially related, but my husband's an ENT and he said that he knows a guy who gets like the majority of his patients because he was mentioned on a Reddit subthread and now people find him that way. So I think, you know, patients are going to find you, you know, if, if you're the one that's going to help them. You could tell your husband that I have an ENT that sends me a lot of patients. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> specializes in Eagle syndrome, where there's the compression of the jugular vein, and he's finding that a lot of his patients also have pelvic pain and other compressive syndromes that can actually add to headaches and migraines that are also associated with pelvic venous disease. And he's actually sending me a lot of patients, so full circle. That 
That is so random. <laughs> That's a really interesting thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to think about that, but I- I'll tell Steve and see what he says. <laughs> Getting back to kind of our topic, you've mentioned that, you know, the vulvar varices, they present in a couple different ways. There's the visible ones, and then there's the ones that are not visible on physical exam. Can we talk kind of about your algorithm and workup for each of these two entities? Sure. And I think, you know, shout out to all the people who did all the work on the SVP classification that was kind of run by Neil Kilnani. And I know Meisner was involved with that and lots of other people, Ron Winokur. You know, they've helped us develop this classification now, right, where we have zone one is the kidneys, right? Zone two would be the mid pelvis. Zone three is that extra pelvic pudendal area. And zone four is the legs. And, you know, we're now trying to classify whether people have a compressive phenomenon or obstruction, whether it's varic veins or reflux or a congenital anomaly anomaly in those locations. And that's kind of helped us think about this a little more globally, I think. So, you know, I do usually start from the top down, treat gonadal vein reflux and iliac vein compression for pelvic vein first, most of the time, if they have all the symptoms. Question about that. Do you usually treat those concurrently or do you do as two separate staged procedures? The way that I look at female pelvic pain is I think it's so much more complicated than we've ever understood. We have a special MRI protocol that allows us to look through TRIX imaging at the dynamic flow in the gonadal veins and what direction that's in. It allows us to see the speed and rapidity of the blood flow in the gonadal vein. If it's slow, there's usually not a significant nutcracker and it allows you to treat for that. We try to identify whether people have the flank pain and hematuria associated with nutcracker. If they don't, Most of those people can still have their gonadal veins successfully treated, but we do have to be a little bit careful, right, at how much of a pop-off pathway that is. We look at the iliac vein compression, and I I think we don't know the answer to that question. It's an amazing question, right? I mean, there's data coming out saying 90% of people get better, significant clinical improvement or complete improvement without treating any of the pelvic varices if you just stent their iliac vein for 50% or more. I think when we get more sophisticated, we're going to find that someone with a 50% narrowing of the iliac vein and 12 millimeter gonadal veins and massive pelvic floor varices is probably going to do better with gonadal vein embolization first. Somebody with a 90% stenosis of the iliac vein and small gonadal veins associated with varices, they're going to do better with stenting first. I think we're a long way off from understanding who gets which, whether we do them both at the same time, and what order to take that into. But I do think that usually I try to treat the proximal pelvic disease if they have the back pain, migraines, groin pain, bad periods, dyspareunia, and all the rest of that. In addition, if it's isolated pain in the labia, certainly reasonable to treat the labia directly first. But I do find that at least the patients with large visible varices in the labia, they almost always need it treated no matter what, right? With a direct stick or... Yeah, patients with a deeper vault pelvic varices, some of those will decompress with treating the proximal disease, and some of them need us to do what I call direct stick labial venography and foam sclerotherapy and or a coil embolization from above. Well, we have an amazing sonographer, Lauren, who helped me come up with a protocol of really just looking in the perineum. So our patients wear these really ridiculous paper shorts, right? And it's not really invasive for them. She just kind of reaches the probe up there and looks from the front of the labia to the back on each side. And if she sees large varices underneath there, then she has them Valsalva and measures how big they are and measures the degree of reflux. And then we know that we can put the patients, you usually do have to sedate them more than just conscious sedation. Like we use propofol, but look with just a 21 gauge, I use a micropuncture needle hooked to a connector tubing with contrast. Look with ultrasound directly, try to stick those varices, get good blood return. And then I do a digital subtraction venography and see where do they spread out? Where are they coming from? 
And then just like we use carbon dioxide as a contrast agent, you can do a DSA while you're injecting the foam and see exactly where it's going. So you can fill those pelvic floor varices and then stop when it gets to the more normal vessels in the pelvis. It also lets you know, is there an isolated branch, usually off the anterior division of the internal iliac or the internal pudendal, that is the main culprit. And occasionally you need to go in from above and coil that branch to allow for yourself to get really good successful foam sclerosis in the labia and pelvic floor. So, okay, that's a really good point. So you can start off by treating them with the direct injection and foam sclerotherapy. How often do they recur when you treat them that way? Yeah, I think some of it's like varicose veins in the legs. If there are a bazillion, not that that's a word, right? But if there are varices everywhere, it's going to get tough. It's going to be tough to get them all treated in a single session. But the majority of patients kind of have a cluster. But what I would say is that, once again, there are nuances to all this. So I'm starting to learn that if they're pooling like varices in the pelvis and it sits there and the contrast sits there, you wash that out with foam and you let the foam sit there, they get a great response. If there is actually rapid flow out of these, as if there's been some sort of a birth trauma, I wonder whether we're missing like microscopic little AV fistulas or communications because sometimes there are varices and the, and the washout is very rapid. Those things tend to do better when you can come in from above and coil embolize that main vein that when they're standing up, you imagine is leading to the varices, but when they're laying flat is the outflow from the varices. And then treating with foam, we get a better result. I think the biggest problem right now, to be honest, is insurance reimbursement for these procedures. Yeah. I mean, could you speak a little bit about that and the, the hurdles you faced with that? Yeah, I think that it's very frustrating for these young women to find out that they've seen sometimes up to 16 physicians. They've had multiple emergency room visits, multiple cross-sectional imaging exams, multiple unnecessary or unhelpful surgeries. And then they finally get a diagnosis that actually matches their symptoms by both location and nature, and the insurance companies won't cover it. So some of that is our fault for not having better prospective randomized trials. And some of that is the result of the fact that it's been very easy for us to ignore the complaints of women over time as just crazy. Or Most of these women have been told they're crazy. Most of them have lost relationships and family. So, I mean, in treating these women, you're really helping them in so many ways that it's it's really satisfying. But in the meantime, luckily, you know, Women's Council at SIR has been incredibly supportive. The Venus Council has been supportive. The Economics Council, we're all working together to try to get money to do better prospective randomized trials on these procedures to try to start getting them reimbursed and for us to get better data on exactly what approach we should be taking. But I mean, unfortunately, we're a long way off. So I think that Practices that are able to provide patients with an affordable way to get this done are going to be very successful at building this business. You're speaking a lot to the insurance denials for deep venous disease, but are you finding a lot of issues when you're doing vulvar sclerotherapy for insurance denials as well? So I would say that I'm finding most of the denials are for caudatal vein embolization and internal iliac vein treatments, which are literally all connected and completely the same as vulvar varices. They are more likely to allow us to do and treat the vulvar varices, but I'm starting to see more and more denials, unfortunately, for any form of foam sclerosis treatment in the pelvis, whether it's labial or not. And I was not seeing those before. That's been a recent trend. So it's an unfortunate trend that despite the fact that the society has put together a list of a meta-analysis review of all the literature there saying 100% we should be supporting these treatments in patients, that the insurance companies, I think that what is difficult for patients to understand, and quite frankly, for me to understand, is why 50% of the insurance companies pay for it and 50% of them don't. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's so heterogeneous and it's really hard to give your patients like an accurate, oh, yes, we can treat this versus a, sorry, your insurance isn't going to cover it. 
that's something I struggle with as well. Ali, one quick word of advice for doctors who want to do this. If you spend the time to have your pre-authorization specialist kind of identify in general which insurance is in your area, right? Or it's an exclusion in their policy. If it is an exclusion in their policy, they will never pay for it. I find that I have had a lot less frustration from patients by not even offering to try to pre-authorize it through those insurance companies because after three years, I asked my pre-authorization specialist who has the biggest heart of anyone I've ever seen in my life and continue to try to push this through insurance. How many of those have you ever gotten covered? And she said, zero. And I said, then stop it. Then let's stop trying to do that. Say this is an exclusion in your policy. Here's cash pay pricing. Let's set up something where we can make it affordable for you and at least get you treated. Because I think the level of frustration for women when they go through three months of appeals and denials and still get this denied and still haven't been treated, have been in pain for that period of time, and then they get treated and fixed, they're very angry. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like you said, they've already been through so many hoops that they've had to jump through just to even be able to see you. And then you say, I have a, I have something that can treat you. Let me run it through your insurance. I'm like 90% sure, 99.9% sure it's going to get denied, but I'm going to try anyways. Yeah, I could see why that'd be really frustrating. I hate to say it, but I think we've had better patient satisfaction by just telling them this is an exclusion in your policy. Where's the cash pay pricing? Choose to do it or not. Make the decision. Move on. Awesome. That's a, that's very helpful. Can we go back a little bit to the procedure and kind of how you how you actually do these? Walk me through step by step how you would set up a patient and then how you would do the procedure and the post-procedure care. So we basically, most of our patients are breathing on their own. They're technically supporting their own cardiovascular health and everything, but we give them a little bit deeper sedation. We have an anesthesiologist provide sedation for them. I find that after the procedure, it's not very painful, but the actual stick into the labia is quite painful in some patients. So if they're visible and you can truly see it, you could put a topical numbing medicine on, you may be able to do that, you know, just without that level of sedation. But if they're deeper and they're a centimeter or two deep to the skin and you've got to get a needle into the labia, you're better off sedating them. So we just put them in a gentle frog-like position with a support under each of their knees. We usually just use an alcohol prep like we do for, you know, if you're just doing a foam sclerosis in the office. We do tell the patients to shave before they come in just because it's hard to see through hair with ultrasound. And then either, depending on how superficial or deep they are, we use a butterfly needle or we just use a micropuncture needle hooked to a small connector tubing with contrast. I will say that the more superficial the veins, if they are not visible externally, the harder it is to get into these. You need a little bit of tissue depth. The other thing I'll say is that I didn't realize until I did a lot of ultrasound in the vulvar region, the tissue is very lobular and it looks a lot like vessels. It can be very hard to identify what's actually a vessel and not. And then the tissue is really mobile. So I will say this has been, in my career, one of the greatest technical challenges that I've had to be able to get stable access to the vessel to allow for a little bit of venography and some foam. Yeah, that's that's been a, a challenge for me too, is when you, you can get into the vessel, right? You can get into the large varics. And then you have like, you're moving the CRM into place. Like you're, somebody's like trying to keep their legs open and you're like injecting contrast or injecting foam sclerosis and you lose your access really quickly. So I think that's a really good point that you make. Like I try to have the table set up, the II right there. I'm barely moving the patient to get to the imaging point. That's an excellent point of one way to make yourself a little bit more successful, I think, is just how you describe having it all set up so you're not moving them like that. I think that makes a big difference. The other thing is that the vestibular branches of the pudendal nerve come right at the junction of, so the base of the labial or vulva in the crease of the buttock where that crease comes over. 
if you can go just outside of that crease, angle up about 45 degrees up at caudal and 45 degrees medial, put your needle in about a centimeter or about an inch and draw back and make sure you have no vascular flow. And then I put about five cc's of ropivacaine or bupivacaine in and you can block the vestibular branches to the labia of the pudendal nerve, and you actually numb the anterior third of the vulva and the labia for six to eight hours afterwards. So you can really get a massive pain reduction in these patients afterwards by just doing a quick little injection. It's not a deep pudendal nerve block, like when you're trying to block all the inner pelvic pain, more of a superficial block, really safe and easy to do. That's really interesting. So do you do that before all of these procedures? I usually do it after just right after I do the injection because I sedate them through the procedure. And I don't know if that's going to cause any venospasm or anything else, which I would love to see after the procedure, but not before. So I actually usually just do the little block. It takes literally 10 seconds on each side to just do it like local anesthetic. And I find that that makes the post-procedural care a lot easier. The other post-procedural tricks is we usually have them bring Spanx or bike shorts or, you know, whatever their version of some sort of tight compression is. And then uh, one of the patients taught me a trick that she felt like the small water bottles or maybe Izzy's would be even better. But uh, frozen in the refrigerator actually is great for localized pain control for inflammation in the hours following the procedure. That's a really good trick. Have you found any, any ways to help with compression in the region as well? There are these V-pad things that they make for women during pregnancy. And I found that some of them even have ice packs that fit and slip in there that are specifically designed for that. So if they're externally visible varices, that could be really helpful. Unfortunately, a lot of the varices that I end up treating, once we started this ultrasound protocol, when people truly are still having pelvic floor heaviness and burning in the vulva and labia, even after you've treated the superficial disease, they're like, oh, my pain's gone up here, but it's all moved right here. We find those on the ultrasound. I find it's hard to see those on MR and CT, although you can. It's just that the field of view is so tiny, and sometimes they're only two or three millimeters, but they make a big difference. Those, it's hard to get compression on because they're a centimeter or two deep to the skin. So even when you put compression, I don't know if we're really compressing those or not. Well, um, that kind of reminds me of kind of what Chris Pittman says about when you do venous sclerotherapy in the leg, right? That the, the sclerosin agent is only actually active for, what, like 30 or 40 seconds? So as long as you're compressing during that time, then you're really making the agent work as well as it can on the vessel wall. Because even if we can't get good compression in that area, you find that your outcomes are still pretty good, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one thing I think that's really important for expectations for patients is that like foam sclerotherapy in the legs, I tell some people, you may have an immediate amazing response with very little pain for the first few days to a week. And then like with larger varices in the legs, after a week to two weeks, when that trapped blood starts to kind of liquefy and expand a little bit, you can get a little bit more of a phlebitis. So I tell them if your symptoms start to return at the week to two week period, don't worry, we'll give it a couple more weeks. And when we get to the one month period, things are usually a lot better. If it's truly superficial, you can do a puncture aspiration and release the trapped blood. But most of these patients, you can just manage them through it. I find that if it's really bad, they respond pretty well to a medrol dose pack just to decrease the inflammation, the phlebitis associated with that. Yeah, it's kind of neat how much of the treatment of superficial venous disease in the leg can be transferred to this area, yet how many people are unwilling to treat it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing is that when there are varices coming down out of the buttock and the medial aspect of the thigh, you know, those you could try to access just in the office. 
But if you recognize that there's a large volume there, you know, I recommend accessing that with a butterfly needle as proximal as you can get, right? And then putting in some foam and then waiting a minute or two, letting that go in and then adding some more and adding some more until you meet that resistance. Because there may be a much larger reservoir in the buttocks or in the labial region that you could then advance that foam into without having to stick directly or, or sedate them. Okay, well, that brings me to a good question about endpoints. When you have the venography available, you kind of know your endpoints, right? When you see reflux into a normal vein. How about when you're doing it without fluoroscopic guidance? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I use tactile feedback. It will flow up there. And then you've got to give it a minute, first of all, for it to flow into the proximal varices and then allow them to spasm a bit to kind of shut down that rapid flow into large varices or washing out in the pelvis. Then you can inject a little bit more and kind of get that up there where it's more spasmed. And then I think, you know, when it no longer spontaneously flows through the needle into the veins, you've probably reached your limit of what you can treat there. Awesome. Okay, well, that sounds like basically what you do for the procedure. Anything, do we miss anything intraprocedurally? Well, the only thing I would tell you is that, you know, I thought the post-op complications were really uncommon and infrequent, which I still believe. But a couple of complications that I've had that really stumped me are, you know, I do think in that area... It is better to set the expectation if you see a lot of varices, right, that the patient may need additional treatment than to go too crazy all at once. So I did have one patient who had just, I mean, when I did the injection under ultrasound, it's just a complete whiteout in the entire buttock and labial area. And I think I did inject a full like 10 mLs of foam and maybe even 12 or 15 because it kept filling this up and I could see it filling all of these varices. I was like, wow, this is really going to help this patient. And it did. But when she woke up on the right and left side from these injections, she had numbness and tingling in her feet, like a pudendal neuralgia. On the right side, it resolved within 20 minutes. On the left side, it persisted. And it persisted for almost a month, despite some steroids and Benadryl and other things. I spoke with neurology. I spoke with a couple of other experts who do a lot of labial varices. None of them had ever seen this before. One of the vascular surgeons did say that if there were really large vessels around the pudendal nerve, We probably just filled those labial varices and really made it angry. It completely resolved, as did her pain. It has helped me understand whether I'm coiling in the pelvis or whether treating from below, that we want to be a little bit careful about the the volume that we do. And then I've also learned not to coil any, even if they're massive pelvic varices, try not to place coils right near the pudendal nerve or the sciatic nerve. You can do that to all of the veins that are in the para-ovarian, para-uterine region. You could do that to all of the veins that are in and around the bladder. But when you get closer to the lateral pelvic sidewall and to the you know sciatic notch and the pudendal notch where those nerves come down into the leg, you want to make sure you can use foam sclerosin. If they get a neuralgia, it'll go away as the vein scars down and collapses. But if you leave a coil there, that can get pretty tricky. Oh, um, that reminds me of a good point you taught me about coils. Can you speak a little bit about what kind of coils you like to use for both gonadal veins and internal iliac vein embos? Yeah, I think there are a lot of options. And I've learned over time that my way is not the only way of doing things, right? So, So I guess what I'll say is that there's lots of options for coils. I like the floppier coils that have little hairs in them. So Interlock from Boston is an example. Some people use really expensive neurocoils. That works well when you're in the hospital and someone else is paying for it, but it's not necessary, I don't think. And, you know, I've seen people pack the entire gonadal vein with coils. I really don't think that's, personally, I don't think that's the way we should be doing it. I've seen more pain associated with that approach. 
the old stainless steel coils that are really cheap, you can use them to try to save money, but they stretch and they're fairly painful. I will say the more that we get into this population and see patients that are getting auto-transplanted for their kidney for nutcracker, uh, the more we see the transplant surgeons saying that those stiff coils sometimes are eroding through the gonadal vein and causing a problem with the ureter or potentially causing an issue. So I think we need to be using soft floppy coils that we can oversize so we make sure that they don't embolize or move. And I would say that that, you know, that would hold true in the pelvis as well. When you're embolizing the internal iliac veins, what's your uh, coil type of choice? You can use coils like nesters and things where they're not detachable, but I'm not as comfortable with that. I think the internal iliac vein coiling is a lot more dangerous than gonadal vein coiling. So what I'll say is that I'm seeing a lot of people right now do gonadal vein coiling where they're identifying giant varices throughout the pelvis and they're just dropping coils in the mid-gonadal vein. I think that's fallen out of favor and most people who do a lot of this don't feel like that's appropriate, but I have people coming from around the country where this is how they've been treated and they still have a lot of symptoms. Now it's much more challenging to go retrograde through the internal iliac parauterine veins, retrograde up into the perovarian. In fact, one patient the other day, I had to go down a very small right gonadal vein across the uterus to get to the varices in the left perovarian region to be able to treat those. So I would say we don't want to do that. We want to treat everything. And my approach with a gonadal vein, when I can see on CT or MR that there is connection to the internal iliac anterior division branches, I try to come down the gonadal vein into that internal iliac vein branch through the perovarian varices all the way down into the pelvis and, and foam there and start my coils there so that I start the coil in those in those internal iliac branches and then have it hook around through the varices in the perovarian region up into the gonadal vein. That way there is no chance of coil embolization. Nothing can go too far away. You haven't jailed anything and you get the whole thing treated at once, especially if it's not covered by insurance and these patients are having to pay cash. It's really kind of almost criminal to go in and treat half the disease and make the patients pay again to come back and have it treated again. That being said, if the patient only has internal iliac varices, which I am seeing more and more from birth trauma in women who've had four or five kids, and for some reason their gonadal veins are still normal, but their pelvic floor is not, I try to go in and take a microcatheter and go out and hook it into several loops or pigtails of varices or hook around into another vessel so that I have at least a U or a C-shaped placement of the coil to kind of hold on to that so that if someone were to valsalva or increase their pressure in their pelvic floor veins that they don't embolize that coil pack, knock on wood. So far to date, haven't had a pulmonary coil pack embolization with that technique. And I think also doing that and going back into the varices and injecting some foam kind of cements that coil into the vessels. I see. Okay. That's very comprehensive answer. Thank you. That's really helpful, actually, because I, I don't think a lot of people get into kind of the technical aspects of how we do a lot of these gonadal and internal iliac vein embolizations, um, and it's definitely something that uh, I've had questions about. Any other technical pearls you could share for our audience about how you like to do these procedures? Yeah, I think I can share one that I'm, I don't know the answer to yet. So talking to Lindsay McCann and Ron Winokur, you know, I may start to try to do this. I feel like as we do more and more of this, there may be certain instances where it's the right way to do it and certain ins instances where it's not. But one of the areas that I'm not 100% sure on yet is how we should be doing the foam sclerosin. I feel like in the internal iliac veins, if you can use a balloon occlusion catheter and get stagnant contrast or stagnant flow in the varices, I prefer just using regular 1.5% Sochdecol foam. 
and using a DSA technique to fill those varices and watch it sit there, leave the occlusion balloon up for five or 10 minutes. And I think I'm getting a really good result. When the flow is faster, maybe I need to start using the advice of Ron Winokur and Lindsay McCann and some others that are out there. Lindsay uses contrast. I, I hope I'm speaking correctly for him. I think he even puts lapiodol in it and gel foam. I know Ron uses gel foam and contrast. And I think that it's okay to make a slurry or a slushy like that. And it may be more effective in large varices in the pelvis. I worry about how long they're going to have pain from the tracked blood and the recovery being more difficult. I think we probably need to do some studies on looking at the efficacy of one technique versus another for how we get the best treatment in these scenarios. So I've chosen to use occlusion, whether with coils or a balloon occlusion and straight foam sclerosant. But I think it's possible that some of these other techniques using a mixture of contrast and gel foam and possibly lapiodol could be equally, if not more effective. And I think for me, I feel like the jury is out on that and I need a little bit more experience and data on that. Where do you like to place your occlusion balloon when you're starting to look in the internal iliac vein? One thing I'll say that I'm seeing a lot recently is that there are several doctors across the country who become experts in autotransplant, moving the kidneys for nutcracker. And I'm seeing them do their own venography. And you know what I'm seeing is that they're, I'm seeing this in the, in the kidney and in the pelvis, that the venography, in my opinion, is not being done correctly in order to get the right information. So I think when you do a renal venogram, you need to put a catheter in the main renal vein, just at the hilum, and then do a reasonable injection and see where it preferentially goes. If you have preferential flow out the main renal vein or slow retrograde flow into the gonadal, I think it's perfectly safe to embolize them. I think where we don't know for sure yet, I had one patient where I thought there was no flow out the renal vein, and I put an occlusion balloon from the other, other I use the great saphenous vein for my access on everything. I don't like accessing the deep veins. So I used the other great saphenous vein to put an occlusion balloon in the gonadal vein and repeated my venogram from my original access, and it showed zero blood flow out the, the renal vein again, all blood flow up the ascending lumbar vein when the gonadal vein was occluded. And that patient, she did not have flank pain. We chose to stent her iliac vein first, see how she did, had the conversation about what may happen if we embolize this gonadal vein. Now, the reality is in some of these people, they're so desperate. And if they don't already have the flank pain, hematuria, or upper abdominal pain, the transplant surgeons are not going to treat their kidneys. So I have the conversation with them. I go, I treat their gonadal vein. And in a large number of them, they do fine. But I have seen a few patients, not that I've treated yet, but I anticipate that may happen, but from other physicians that developed increasing flank pain and required an autotransplant afterwards. I think if we've had the conversation and the pain they're having their pelvis is debilitating, these women are willing to go through it. It's all about setting appropriate expectations. But to come back to your conversation about how to do the internal iliac vein evaluations in the pelvis, I use an MPA catheter or a Cobra catheter, depending on whether I'm coming from above or below and I'm trying to evaluate for stending at the same time or not. It's really important to get into the anterior division of the internal iliac. I'm frequently seeing people put their catheters into the common iliac and not use balloon occlusion and do a venogram and completely miss entire pelvic floor varices in these patients. So I think it's really important to get into that anterior division because when you get down into the internal pudendal, all of a sudden you will see the vesicular branches, the periuterine branches, the perivaginal branches, you know, light up with varices that you can completely miss from a more proximal injection. So do you subselect each of these branches in addition to just doing the balloon occlusion in the anterior division? Or is it get in the anterior division, occlude a balloon, inject, and see what fills? That technique has worked perfectly fine for me. But the reality is even with the MPA, 
if you get down there, you can kind of angle into the origin of each and you'll see whether there's rapid anti-grade flow or if there's no retrograde flow in pooling, they usually don't have the disease. And I don't always do a balloon occlusion. If they've been stented and they've had their gonadal veins treated and they're still symptomatic, they're getting a balloon occlusion venogram because that is the definitive way to rule it in or out, treat it and be done with it, right? If you're just doing the initial evaluation of the kidney and you're going to stent the iliac or you're going to do the gonadals, you know, you may or may not do that at that time because that may all decompress after you've treated the proximal disease. So I think I, I reserve the balloon occlusion approach to when that's what I'm going after to treat at that moment. I usually do the just iliac venography, but making sure I get into that anterior division and not just the posterior division or just that presacral venous plexus. Got it. Well, I think that's like most of the technical stuff I wanted to pick your brain about. So thanks so much for that. Let's talk about post-procedure. When do you see these patients in follow-up? And then when do you get any imaging? So we usually see the patients back after about three weeks. I think it takes that much time for things to calm down and to have any sort of reasonable expectation of where we go forward in the future. I tell them it can take three months to six months, but most of the venous studies, the data we know out of the venous studies in the lower extremities is that the level of decompression we see in varices after saphenous vein ablation, for example, has usually reached its peak at three months and we don't see continued improvement after that. So I don't know whether it's reasonable to extrapolate that data into the pelvis, but that's what I've been using for these women. I do think that, and Neil Kalmani is way more knowledgeable about this than I am, but they're finding these pain receptors in the pelvis, they call nociceptors, that are pressure sensors that, that we think may be the cause of pain in patients with pelvic venous disease from the increased pressure on the veins and in the, in the venous plexus in the pelvis. And what they're seeing is that it can take six months to a year to downregulate these pelvic pain responses after any sort of therapy. So, you know, uh, it's a little confusing as to the amount of time, but I tell some of the patients, try not to get too discouraged. If we do a follow-up ultrasound, we don't see any residual varices. They're still having pain. It can take some time. There's also a book that Kathy Weitzman, who's the past president of International Pelvic Pain Society, is out here in Denver, in, at Denver Health, and she's been an incredible resource for me. We've been collaborating together. She's come and watched me do cases. She's the one that taught me how to do the pedendal little vestibular nerve block. And she's been fantastic, but she there's a book called The Way Out. And I've got to look at who the author is. I'm blanking right now. Uh, it's by a physician in California that has done a lot of work on pain pathways and and how to get patients to, you know, help themselves get out of the chronic pain processes. My understanding is it's all scientifically based and has had some great successes with that. So, you know, that's a book that I recommend my patients read to see if there's some exercises and things in there that they can do to help. And then reassurance that they've done some studies looking at these chronic pain patients and they've done functional brain imaging where they see areas in the brain that are lighting up. And that's different from acute pain patients. And so they know that there are neural pathways. I try to explain to my patients the, the brain is an organ with neurotransmitters and we've upregulated or downregulated those neurotransmitters for you to have this perception of pain. So in people who have pain docs, have been on narcotics, really true chronic pain patients, I tell them it, it's hard to be patient with pain, right? But it makes them feel better that they're not a failure. Somehow these women sometimes feel like a failure in themselves when they're not responding to therapies immediately. If you tell them, you know, even if pelvic floor physical therapy didn't work before, now that we've gotten rid of the firing and the cause of the pelvic pain, now pelvic floor physical therapy may work to try to help you relax the muscles, regulate those receptors and downregulate everything and get that pain to go away. So I think setting expectations up front for how long this recovery could truly take is helpful to these women. 
If you go in and you have a young 16 to 25 year old with severe pelvic pain, they're debilitated, they've dropped out of school, they have migraine headaches, they have partial tachycardia, you put a stent in them and they're all better. You win. It's a massive win. You're so excited and everything's fantastic, right? If you're taking women that have gone through this for 15 to 20 years and they have bad gonadal veins, a bad iliac vein, and bad pelvic floor varices and vaginal and labial varices, you know, it may take three or four procedures to get these patients to the point where they're pain-free. But I think we start with the stenting or gonadal vein, depending on the patient's specifics. Sometimes we've got to go back and do those internal iliac veins and direct stick, and rarely you've got to go back and do some more direct stick or treat some more of the pelvic varices if they just have a massive reservoir. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's just kind of end on a couple of advice questions, I guess. One great thing about our field is we're starting to have more female interventional radiologists, right? So like one of my hopes, and I know one of your hopes, is that uh, there'll be more interest in treating women's health and treating some of these advanced diseases that have historically been neglected. So what advice do you have for endovascular specialists who are interested in treating this patient population? I think the first thing is that the patients have a lot of mistrust in the healthcare and medical system. I think it goes an extremely long way to sit down with a patient and say, you know, I've reviewed your records. I see that you've been to a lot of specialists. I already believe that you're having a problem in pelvic pain, and we're here to see if we can help you with that. I think they have been so invalidated that their immediate response to any practitioner is one of defensiveness, and they're terrified to come and see you because they're afraid you're going to also tell them they're crazy. So the first thing that I do is validate the patient's concern and tell them that I don't believe they're crazy. And it goes a very long way to developing a healthy relationship with that patient. I think it's very important that we do that and we owe it to these patients to do that. That's a, a very inspirational statement. Could you tell us a little bit more about your imaging workup for these patients? So the one other thing that I would add when you say, how do we approach these patients, right, is that, you know, I know there are a lot of people talking about different ways to work them up, right? And I know a lot of people are a big proponent of ultrasound. I don't think we can get adequate information off ultrasound alone to treat these patients. I believe that these patients' pain may be multifactorial. I think it's very important personally to do an MRI. And I have lots of talks out there that show my protocol. You're welcome to steal them at any time. And I freely give it to anyone who asks me and is interested in the protocol. It's a single protocol MRI that can be done in 45 minutes. And the reason I think it's important is that these women have been through a lot and it's very important to set expectations. It's not enough to see para-ovarian veins on ultrasound. It's not enough. You need to look at the imaging yourself. It will be misinterpreted 99% of the time and you need to be able to start correlating in your brain what level of compression on an MRI correlates with a venogram and intravascular ultrasound that shows physiologic evidence of collateralization or a true narrowing that the patients then respond to. What level of compression of the renal vein makes you very worried that this patient is going to be dangerous to embolize without developing flank pain? And what level is pretty normal and you think you're going to be fine? I think expectations are very important to talk about up front with these patients. The third thing when you look at your MRI is where are the varices? If they're para-ovarian, it may be gonadal, but if they are low in the pelvic floor at the base of the uterus, the vagina, and the bladder, these are coming off the internal iliac vein. And if you tell a patient you're going to go embolize their gonadal vein and their bladder, bowel, and pelvic floor symptoms are going to wet, go away, and they do not, you become one of the physicians they do not trust. 
And I think it's very important for us to look at this imaging. As you start to look at this imaging, you will start to see the varices extending down into the labia, into the vagina. You will start to be able to match the patient's symptoms to where you are seeing the abnormalities. And it will it will tell you how to go and get and, and approach the problem in each specific patient individually and set expectations. And when your expectations and what you've told the patient start to match closely with your treatment algorithms and what's happening, then you really start to truly help these patients. And I think that that's another important point to make. Thank you, Dr. Spencer. And thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We're getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription. A great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.